Here's to Second Chronicles chapter 29, and we'll pick up reading at verse 20 through to the end of the chapter, verse 36. Second Chronicles chapter 29, verse 20 through 36. This is the word of the Lord. Then Hezekiah, the king, rose early and gathered the rulers of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bullocks and seven rams and seven lambs and seven he-goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they killed the bullocks, and the priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, when they had killed rams, they sprinkled the blood on the altar. They killed the lambs, and they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. And they brought forth the he-goats for a sin offering before the king and the congregation. And he laid their hands upon them. And the priests killed them. They made reconciliation with their blood upon the altar to make an atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. And he set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals with psalteries, with harps, according to the commandment of David, and of Gad the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet, for so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. And the Levites stood with the instruments of David, and the priests with the trumpets, and Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering, and upon the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David, king of Israel. And all the congregation worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded, and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had made an end of offering, the king and all uh, that were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. Moreover, Hezekiah, the king, and the princes commanded the Levites to sing praise unto the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. Then Hezekiah answered and said, Now ye have consecrated yourselves unto the Lord. Come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. And the congregation brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, and as many as were of a free heart, burnt offerings. And the number of the burnt offerings which the congregation brought was threescore and ten bullocks, a hundred rams, two hundred lambs, and all these were for a burnt offering to the Lord. And the consecrated things were six hundred oxen and three thousand sheep, but the priests were too few so that they could not flay all the burnt offerings. Wherefore, their brethren, the Levites, did help them till the work was ended, 
And until the other priests had sanctified themselves, for the Levites were more upright in their hearts to sanctify themselves than the priests. And also the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offerings and the drink offerings for every burnt offering. So the service of the Lord was set in order. And Hezekiah rejoiced, and all the people that God had prepared the people for the thing was done suddenly. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and precious word, may he bless the consideration. In his earthly ministry, we read that in the travels of the Lord Jesus Christ, in John's gospel account, chapter 4, that Jesus must go, needed to go, must needs go, through Samaria. And children, I think maybe you are familiar with that passage in John chapter 4, where the Lord Jesus Christ, he needed to go through Samaria, clearly, because he had to meet a woman there at a, a well. And the woman in John chapter 4, she is not named, but Jesus felt compelled to travel through there in his, in his ministry. And it is clear from his interaction with this woman that he intended to save her. And when you finish the passage, it's very clear that is exactly what he did. He saved her soul. She was a great sinner. But Christ's grace was far greater than her sin, just as Christ's grace is also far greater than all our sins. And in that passage in John chapter 4, there's many very important lessons I trust that we could glean from that. But one of the very important lessons that we glean from it is the what and the who of true worship. As Jesus dialogues with her, she increasingly becomes aware that this man speaking to her, Jesus, is unique. We, would pick, we pick it up at John chapter 4 and verse 19, the dialogue, and the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that there were a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming that you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. In other words, God is not a man. God is a spirit. And therefore, we are called to worship this spiritual being 
in a spiritual way, in a true way, in a right way. In fact, Jesus repeats here, doesn't he, to her, he says we must worship him in spirit and in truth. And he says the hour is coming and we will worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, today I want to go back with you to the Old Testament and find an event in Israel's very long and complex history where we find a record of uh, the Jews, particularly Judah, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And so our text really is, is a good bulk of that which we read together from Second Chronicles 29, verses 20 uh, through 36. And our theme for this evening is the nature of true worship. The nature of true worship. Why did we come to church today? What's your answer to that simple and yet very, very important question? Why did you come to church? Why do we come to church? I would hope and pray that at least part of our answer, and at the core of our answer, the foundation of our answer, would be to worship God. That's what we're here for, is to worship the Lord God. And that's what we find Judah doing here in this particular chapter. Look with me at verse 28. And all the assembly worshipped. Again, verse 29. All who were present bowed and worshipped. Again, verse 30. They bowed their heads and they worshipped. Clearly, Judah here is worshipping the Lord God. Some refer to this as a great revival in, in history, in Judah's history. And there's probably uh, quite a bit of truth to that, as we'll see that they had sinned and come short of the glory of God. And now they turn again afresh to truly worship the Lord God in a right and in a godly way. Now, to understand this, uh, this passage rightly... We have to just understand just a little bit of the historical setting in which it transpired here in the land of Israel, and particularly uh, among uh, the nation of Judah. At this particular time, Hezekiah was uh, the king in Judah, and just prior to Hezekiah's reign, his father Ahaz was a very wicked king, a very ungodly king. And he had reigned, actually sadly, among the, uh, the 42 or so kings that reigned in the united Israel and then in the, the divided Israel uh, of the 42 or so kings that reigned, a vast majority of them, uh, they did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. Many of them did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And a few of them had uh, somewhat mixed reviews, if you will. Uh, some did um, right at the beginning and then not so good at the end and a little bit vice versa in one, in one case. But here we find that Ahaz was a particularly 
sinful king, a terribly ungodly king. But his son Hezekiah, in God's mysterious and yet wonderful providence, was one of the more godly kings in Judah's colorful history. Now, Hezekiah uh, was but a man. He wasn't perfect in any way, shape, or form. Actually, one time after he had been uh, healed by God from a, from a near-death sickness, he, he was granted, I think we might know that story, some 15 extra years. We are told in 2 Kings 20 and verse 6. But sometime after that, he actually uh, bragged and he stumbled, and he bragged to the Babylonians about all the, all the things that, uh, that Israel or Judah had. And instead of expressing a, a measure of humility, he seemed to be filled, at least temporarily, with pride. But comparative to all the other kings in Judah, Hezekiah... Uh, We read in 2 Kings 18 in verse 5, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. And also in uh, the first part of this chapter, 2 Chronicles 29, uh, verses 1 and 2, we read that Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father, that is, his, his ancestor, literally, David, had done. David, of course, was not his literal father. Ahaz was, but... Uh, the, the word father there is a reference to his ancestor, David, being a significantly godly king as well. And so Hezekiah is the, is the new king, as the new leader in Judah after the previous ungodly reign of his uh, father Ahaz. He worships the Lord rightly, and he guides Judah to worship the Lord in a right and in a spiritual, God-honoring manner. And so we ask ourselves this evening hour, what is the nature, what's the character, what's the flavor, what's the posture of true godly worship that really indeed honors the Lord? I would hope that this is a, a question that we ask ourselves from time to time. Because we, we come together, don't we? Some 52 weeks of the year, maybe sometime midweek as well, uh, to worship the Lord. We come together certainly regularly uh, to, to gather here. And we ought to be asking ourselves, if we're thinking Christians, that is, how am I to do this rightly? How am I to do this biblically? What honors God? And then as we reflect on the broader world and culture around us, as you hear of of revivals or so-called revivals in, in, in history and in this land and nation and around this world, we ask ourselves, what really constitutes true worship? What really constitutes a true revival when God is truly in it, when God is truly working his, his, his spirit, with his spirit, and truly uh, in, in spirit and in truth, uh, visiting his people and filling them to worship him in spirit 
and in truth. What's the nature of true worship? Well, let's go through uh, this evening this passage, certain aspects of this passage, to, to consider some aspects of true worship. And the first thing that we uh, take note of from Second Chronicles 29 is that true worship is certainly repentant worship. True worship is certainly repentant worship. In Second Chronicles 29, and just prior to our, our where we picked up reading at verse uh, 20, actually at verse 3, the doors of the house of God were opened once again after being closed during uh, Ahaz's wicked rule. And we read in verse 16 that they cleansed the house of the Lord. And then in verses 20 uh, through 24, we read that they brought multiple sacrifices. And particularly at this time, they brought the sin offering. Look with me at verse 24. And the priests killed them, and they presented their blood on the altar as a sin offering to make an atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering, that's King Hezekiah, commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering be made for all Israel. Why was it that the people particularly, they engaged in the sin offering? Why did Hezekiah command them to bring the sin offering at this particular time? Very clearly, it was because he and Judah recognized that they had sinned and come short of the glory of God. They had repentant hearts. They had, particularly under Ahaz's wicked rule, not done that which was right in the sight of God. And when you and I have not done, whether in worship or in life, not done that which is right in the sight of God, we need to repent. We need to come before God and smite upon our own breast and say with the publican in Luke chapter 18, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have come short, O God, of your glory. I've sinned against heaven and against thee. We must come with a repentant heart, even as we worship the Lord. In fact, to, to not come with a, with a repentant heart is a, is a heart of presumption. But conversely, 1 John 1 and verse 9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, that He, that is God, is faithful. He's a faithful God, and He is just. That is, He is right to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then John follows up, 1 John 1 verse 9 with verse 10, but if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so if we think that we don't need a repentant heart, and we don't need to confess our sins before God. We are really sticking out our jaw at the Lord and saying, Lord, you're a, you're a liar. Your word is not true. And who are we then 
as puny human creatures to have such an attitude before God. You see, God calls us to worship Him with a repentant heart, with a heart that confesses who we are by nature and what we continue to be by nature. Luther, he put it this way. He said, the moment we stop repenting is the very moment we start backsliding. And I trust that if we know just a smidge of our own sinful hearts, dear Christian tonight, you know exactly how true that is. We need to come before God saying, Lord, please hear me. Yes, I praise thy holy name. I honor thee and all the rest that we're hoping to to consider also this evening hour. Certainly repentance is an important part of faith. Maybe you say, well, or important part of worship rather, but maybe you say, "Well, well, what about faith? Well, faith and repentance really are just the same. Uh, they're on the same coin. They're just opposite sides of the same coin. We come to the Lord in, in faith, repentingly believing and believingly repenting. Sometimes I think we can get so theologically caught up in what, which one uh, chronologically uh, precedes the other or follows the other. But the truth is, if we're truly repenting, we're truly believing. If we're truly believing, we're truly repenting. But certainly the people here, they recognized that they had sinned and come short of the glory of God. And they came with sin offerings. They came with a repentant heart. And so we ask ourselves tonight, was that part of the posture of our hearts as we entered into this place of worship? Is that part of the posture of our hearts even now as we worship? Do we recognize a measure of the sinfulness and the depravity that naturally resides within us? Well, you may say, well, I, I don't know enough of my sin. I've never yet met a Christian who, who can recognize the totality of our sin. Jeremiah 17 tells us that the heart is desperately wicked and no man can know it all. You can never come to an end of an endless well. You'll never be able to understand and comprehend how incredibly depraved you are. You understand something of it and not just understand it, but do you, do you confess it before the Lord and do you repent of your sins before God? This is part of true worship. This is how the people of God worshipped in truth with a repentant heart. But then secondly, they also came with eager enthusiasm with eager enthusiasm and we see that particularly in the phrase in verse 20 where we find Hezekiah the king he rose early and he gathered the rulers of the city and went up to the house of the Lord when we come to worship the Lord we ought to like Hezekiah be filled with eagerness, be filled with enthusiasm, be filled with a desire, a strong desire to worship the Lord. 
familiar psalm. Maybe some of you read it on Sunday morning as well as a practice in our household. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. You can almost sense, can't you, the eagerness of the psalmist as he's writing those very words, filled with desire, filled with, with longing to come to God's house. Or Psalm 69 and verse 9, the zeal of thy house has, has eaten me up, consumes me. Tell me, what excites you? What really, really excites you? Do you get excited to come to God's house to worship Him? Do you do what Hezekiah does here? He rose up early in the morning to meet with God's people, to sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving, the sacrifices of the sin offering before the Lord. And if we don't have even a measure of enthusiasm that way, we have to ask ourselves the honest, honest question. Why don't we have that more? And maybe you say, well, it's because we're sinful. Well, that's the right answer, of course, on a test. But do you recognize that you're sinful? You see, then... We ought to go to God and repent of that sin and say, Lord, I am sinful. Give me zeal. Give me a Hezekiah-like posture rising up early in the morning. Give me the priority of longing to hear the Word of God in His house. You know, what we do here in church on the Lord's days and as we gather around the Word of God as a people of God is a preparation for the eternal worship to come. And are you longing? Are you longing to do that, dear Christian? To worship God forever and ever. How is your practice going for that here below? We have to do a spiritual inventory from time to time in our hearts and lives and, and say, Lord, why am I not filled with more zeal? and more longing, and more desire to worship you, to make church and worship a priority. Now, we struck by very wise words, not inspired by the Spirit words, but wise words of J.C. Penney, the founder of the chain store, who once famously said, if you're too busy to, to a church, to too busy to attend church on Sunday and the Wednesday evening prayer meeting, you're doing more than God wants you to do. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. But here, Hezekiah, he's a, he's a good example to follow. He's a leader giving a good example for the people to follow. He rose up in the morning early to worship. But let's look for a moment past Hezekiah. Let's look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate example of the one who is filled with zeal. Around this time of the year, at Christmas time, we often read that well-known prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called, children, you know it, Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There will be no end to, his, to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And then these words that we sometimes forget in that all-important passage and the zeal, the zeal, the passionate eagerness of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It is the passionate eagerness It is the zeal of the Lord God that sent His Son into the world and that Spirit that descended upon Christ at the River Jordan as He goes around and does His ministry and now sits at the right hand of the Father is filled with a holy and a righteous zeal to worship. And you know, the more we abide in Him, by faith. That wonderful, mysterious truth becomes an experienced reality in our hearts and life. We begin to share more and more in that zeal of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we grow in His wisdom. We grow in His likeness. We grow in His stature. We grow in spiritual maturity. But we also grow in the zeal that lays within his holy heart. And so how do we get more zeal? Well, we turn to Christ. It's very simple. We rest in Christ. We hope in Christ. We follow Christ. We walk in Christ's footsteps. You see, it's all in him. He who is the express image of the Father, the zeal, the passionate eagerness of the Lord of hosts will perform this. He is the ultimate example. Hezekiah is a wonderful example. But Jesus is the perfect example of how to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Jesus didn't have to repent. You and I need to. But Jesus is filled with eager enthusiasm as the worship, the ultimate worship leader. But then overlapping and and along with that, we also find that true worship is Christ-based. Christ-based, thirdly. And going back to our chapter, 2 Chronicles 29, we read in verses 21 through 24, and then again in, in verses 32 through 35, we read that there was many, many sacrifices in fact, there was, there was a lot of bloody sacrifices. If you would have visited at that time, there would have been blood everywhere, literal blood everywhere. In fact, we, we read in, in verse 35 that of the sacrifices, there was an abundance. Now, all these sacrifices... All these sacrifices, these abundance of sacrifices, sin offering and all the rest, they all pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how they find, they, they find their, 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 their zenith, their, their culmination, their end point in Him. 
The writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews 10 and verse 10 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, that is, in and of themselves. But this man, Jesus, that is, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so worship, true worship, must be Christ-founded. It must be Christ-grounded. It must be Christ-focused. It must be beginning with Christ. It must be framed in the gospel of Christ. It needs to focus on Him who is the way, who is the truth, and the life. A true worshiper says, in truth, what the Greeks said to Philip in John 12 and verse 21, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so every text, every text that we read in Scripture needs to be seen in light of His person and His work. The preacher and the congregation need to be saved by Christ, captivated by the gospel of Christ. And as Paul writes it in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, the love of Christ constrains or compels us. Does the love of Christ constrain and compel us? Also this evening, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth? Can you say with Peter when Jesus was communicating with him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Can you say that? Does the the love of Christ constrain you, compel you to worship Jesus? Worship must be Christ-based. The Word of God The written testimony of the Word of God ultimately points us in every single verse in one way or another to the living Word, the Word that was made flesh, as John writes it in John 1, and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, it's all about Jesus in the New Testament and in, in the Old Testament way, in Old Testament time, in Judah and Hezekiah's time, it was all about Jesus, pictured in the sacrifices. And it's a pattern for you and I to follow. Because it is so easy for religious people to fall fall into the trap of simply external moralism. Just being good people, hearing that we need to be good this week and to do right things externally and somehow think in our kind of fallen pharisaical way that if we just do the right thing, somehow God is well pleased. And if we fall into that trap and engage in that way, pretty soon we won't need Jesus Jesus won't be important for us. 
but we need him. We need him at home. We need him at work. We need him in worship. We need his blood to cleanse us from all our sins, to fill us with a heart of worship, to worship him rightly. Fourthly, true worship involves God-honoring music. God-honoring music. I trust you, you, you sensed here as we read through this and as we, as we reflected upon how the, the nation of Israel, the people of God, Judah, in a previous administration under Ahaz, was not worshiping the Lord rightly. They were not singing the praises. And here Hezekiah, this next godly king, he comes into leadership and he guides the people. He guides the people the way of God-honoring music. God-honoring music is an is a important and integral part of worshiping the Lord. Of course, we know that the preached word is a very important and the most important part of, of worship. Romans 10, verses 14 through 17 tells us that, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and particularly by the, by the preached word of God. Um, Peter adds in 1 Peter 1 and verse 24 that all flesh is grass and the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass, grass withers, the flower thereof falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. But God-honoring music is also designed by God to be a part of true worship. And we have a wonderful worship book, musical worship book, don't we? Contained in the Word of God. It's called the Book of Psalms. There's 150 inspired lyrics that are meant to be sung with musical accompaniment. Paul, he picks up on this in Colossians 3 and verse 16. And he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Here in 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 25, we find that it is a commandment, a commandment by the Lord to sing in worship. And in verses 26 through 28 of this passage, we find that there was both singing and the playing of musical instruments. Look at verse 26. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. So all the assembly worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. And so you see, true sacrificial worship involves vocal and instrumental music going together like a hand and a glove. God calls us to worship him Yes, round his word, but to worship him with songs, with songs of praise, with songs of confession, 
with songs of contrition, with songs of petition, with songs of thanksgiving. The last psalm in the Bible, Psalm 150, six short verses, 13 times we are told again and again and again, 13 times that everything, everyone who has breath to praise the Lord. And so repentant and eager and Christ-centered worship results in wholehearted musical praise to the Lord. Do we have this joy and enthusiasm singing songs of praise to God? You know, in choirs, they have to perform a concert or or an evening They get together and they practice, don't they? You know, one of the things that the people of God will be doing, not the only thing, but one of the things that the people of God will be doing in eternity will be singing the praises of God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And how are we doing with our practice for that day? As we worship, are we... Are we seeking to to lift up our hearts and praying that our hearts would be lifted up to worship our God and Father through the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, in spirit and in truth, by singing the songs of praise to God. Hear the people of the Lord. They worshipped Him rightly with God-honoring music. Sadly, of course, there's, there's much that isn't God-honoring music. I'm not going to go there this evening. But there is much that is God-honoring. And here the people of God, uh, they worship the Lord with God-glorifying music. Then along with that, we find in verse 30 uh, that uh, their worship was joyful. Their worship was joyful. Look at verse 30. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, with gladness. And they bowed their heads in worship. And again in verse 36, Hezekiah and the people rejoiced. They rejoiced. Again, Psalm 122, that very familiar and beautiful psalm. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Is your heart filled not only with desire, but is your heart filled with gladness, with joy, and with gladness to worship with the people of God round the living word of God to exalt the living name of God. Here in this God-sent revival, here in this example of true worship, the people of God, the people of Judah, they were filled with, with joy. They were filled with gladness. Lord's Day 38 of the Heidelberg Catechism 
Such beautiful language. What does God require in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment, of course, is all about uh, the Lord's day. And the answer, first, that the ministry of the gospel be maintained. Uh, that is, the, the, the preaching of the word that needs to be maintained, also at seminary. And that, that I, especially on the Sabbath, that is, on the day of rest, diligently frequent the church of God, hear his word, use the sacraments, publicly call on the name of the Lord, contribute to the relief of the poor, as is fitting or becomes a Christian, and secondly, that all the days of my life I cease from my evil works. That's the repentant part of of worship, that I cease from my evil works. And I yield myself to the Lord to work by his Holy Spirit in me and thus begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. You see, worshiping the Lord God in spirit and in truth is the closest thing here on earth as heaven itself. You know, sometimes we eat something or we look at a beautiful view, or whatever that may be, and we say, this is heavenly. Of course, we exaggerate it. But I wonder if we say that after we leave church, and we say this was heavenly. Clearly, principally from the Word of God, summarized so well in, in this 38th Lord's Day of the Catechism, worshiping the Lord, is heavenly. It's a preparation for heaven to come. It's the closest thing to heaven on earth that a human being can ever, ever experience. I believe when we understand a measure of that, our hearts ought to be filled with delirious joy, incredible joy. Here we have sin clinging to us, flowing through us, part of us, but in glory hereafter, all sin is absolutely gone. Every stitch, every every remnant. Can you even begin to imagine a world where there is, there is nothing that dishonors God within us? No original sin, no pride, no unbelief. No lukewarmness, no half-heartedness, no lackluster uh, worship at all. But then it will be with the Lord forever. We have to think of these things from time to time. And I believe that when we do, and the Spirit blesses it, we will be filled with a measure of joy, anticipating that which awaits the people of God to come. Beautiful text we find in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9 that there is a rest. And the original word in the, the Greek language, there is a Sabbath rest. There is a sabbatismos. It's the only time we find that word in the, the Bible in its original form. There is a Sabbath rest laid up for the people of God. There's a day coming, dear Christian, when that which we do here in the house of God will 
will fade away as, as beautiful and as enjoyable as it can be, gathering with the people of God, hearing His Word, singing His praises, confessing His name. It's just a, a small foretaste of that which will be ushered in with all of its fullness, all of its, its thundering glory, as one elder the late elder in Iowa used to say to me, when God in all of its thundering glory will be everything with his people, it will be joyful, joyful beyond words. And that begins here. But then, lastly and finally, true worship is also prayerful. Look at verses 29 and 30 of Second Chronicles 29. They bowed in worship. They bowed in worship. That's reflective of a prayerful heart. We have to have, yes, an element of our prayer, our service rather, an informal prayer. But I trust that from time to time, you're praying, you're praying, you're praying even as you're sitting here. With your eyes wide open, you're praying, Lord, may this be my reality. Lord, may this be a reality for my child, my my grandchild. They don't know it yet. Lord, fill all of our family circle with with a sense of joy and praise and repentance and, and thanksgiving. True worship involves true prayer as well. Are we praying as we worship? Do we pray before the service as individuals, as family? Do we pray during the service? Do we pray after the service? 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 17 tells us to pray without ceasing. Psalm 145 verse 18 tells us that the Lord is near to those who call upon Him who call upon him in truth. True prayer is is adoration, is confession, is thanksgiving, is supplication. True prayer is part of true worship. And so we find that true worship involves at least these things, repentance and eager enthusiasm and Christ-centeredness and involves God-honoring music along with the Word of God, of course, and is joyful and is prayerful. And none of these things contradict one another. None of them. Why? Because none of the Word of God contradicts itself. But rather they complement one another. With an E, not complement, but complement one another. They, they, they mesh perfectly because this is God-sent revival. This is God-sent worship at the time of Hezekiah. This is God-honoring as the people of Judah gathered for the praise of God. And so as we come full circle this evening, Jesus said that there is a time coming when they will worship me in spirit and in truth. And Jesus goes one step further and says to the woman in Samaria that we must worship him. It's not an option. We must worship him.
in spirit and in truth. Do we love God honoring worship as was done in the time of Hezekiah? I pray that we would worship the Lord our God for the, for the sake of Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth because Jesus said such worshipers the Father in heaven does desire. May God grant all of us for the first time or afresh or in a renewed way to worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen. Let's pray. Lord our God, how we do give thanks for this passage in the Word of God that so clearly, so plainly, and yet so convictingly teaches us the right pattern in the nature of worship. Forgive us, O God, each one of our lackluster worship, our wrong worship, our false worship, our God-dishonoring worship in some cases. Fill us, O Lord, with greater measures of the nature of true worship in our very souls so that one day that we too would be blessed to hear those welcome words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Lord, we pray that Christ's Spirit would so fill us with zeal, with love, with joy, with compassion, with desire, and with song to, to hear the word of God and to honor the Lord our God. Dismiss us, we pray, with thy favor and blessing. Go with us the rest of this Lord's day. Bless us in this week to come. Gather with this congregation as they as they worship from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. Uh, bless uh, thy servant as he brings the word of God next week. Bless the, the ministry for dear brother Ruel as, as well as he brings the word of God regularly here and the others who, who bring it from time to time. Lord, how we do give thanks that you speak to us through your word. And we pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit of God has to say each week uh, to the church. Forgive us, we pray, of all of our sins. Fill us with joy and peace in believing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.